Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies. This is Ryan Shelton, your host, and today it's my great privilege to be joined by Noel A. Snyder. He's the author of Sermons That Sing, Music and the Practice of Preaching, published in August of 2021 by IVP Academic as part of their Dynamics of Christian Worship series. Noel, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Ryan. Well, I'm so excited to talk about sermons that sing. Uh, but before we get into the book, I wonder if you could share with us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. I am a Presbyterian pastor, husband, and a father of three kids. I work as a program manager at the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, which is part of Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our work is uh, blessedly broad in that we engage a wide swath of North American Christianity uh, through our grants program, through some uh, events that we put on, like our worship symposium every winter. Uh, used to be January, now it's in uh, early February and uh, through our publications program. And so uh, it's my joy to be able to serve in this role at Calvin. And uh, this is uh, actually uh, an extension of my work here. The, the start of your book actually opens up with a little bit of a, of a kind of personal story um, that can help us understand what led you to, uh, to writing about this topic. Sure. Yeah. I talked about an experience that I had in uh, my first uh, full-time ministry role where I was an associate pastor. And one of my main duties was to uh, oversee the worship of this church. And uh, this church had set it up uh, the way that many churches in America, at least, had decided to separate out their worship services by worship style. So there was a traditional service first, and then there was a contemporary service second. But when I came on and sort of as I got to know the church and the congregation a little bit more, mostly we talked about that there wasn't much difference between those two, although there was a difference, obviously, in the the songs that we would sing and the, the things that I would select. But we would we would do some quote unquote contemporary songs in the first service and, you know, and vice versa, some, uh, some hymns, traditional um, congregational music uh, in the second service. Then after our senior pastor left, uh, the church was sort of in, in grief. Uh, he was beloved and, and we, we were all trying to figure out what to do and who, who we were going to be. And we were dealing with the sadness of his loss and at that time, it just sort of happened uh, that uh, some people uh, focused on the music as one area where um, 
now we need to sort of work out our uh, our griefs and our sadness. Well, that was at least how I understood or what I thought was going on. But um, what really puzzled me and what what I write about in the book is that the way it was expressed was like, what have you, what have you changed? Like talking to me, like what have you what have you changed? And I felt like I was very intentional not to make any changes because this was a time in the congregation's life when we were going through transition and it was important to have that stability. And so I started to think now, why in the world? Now it's possible that I was channeling some of that sadness or whatever myself. And that was what they were sensing had changed. But like, why in the world would there be this sense that I had made a change in the worship music when I was pretty intentional not to. Hmm. And I started to reflect on well, maybe it's not the worship music as a whole in particular. Of course, there again, like there could be some of that emotional register that's um, lower because uh, we're all kind of uh, sad about this loss. But also, I just started to think like we had an interim minister at the time who had a very different vocal style, a very different liturgical presence. And I just really started to wonder how much in that case they were sensing uh, the people who were sensing a change were actually sensing uh, that sort of change. And it really got me thinking more about how the musicality of speech, the musicality of interpersonal relationships, how that really influences, at, at least in the case of preaching, um, how preaching works and uh, the impact of preaching, its meaning in people's lives. And when you make a change in a person's uh, vocal tone, you've got a totally different preacher now, and they've got uh, the musicality of their preaching is different. You know, how much uh, intuitively we sense is different than about that change. So you're looking at this connection between preaching, homiletics, and, and music, music theory, musical concepts. But you make the point that hearing is a really important discipline to attend to for anyone who cares about theology. You know, the, the the favorite sort of proof text verse of preachers uh, from Romans, faith comes by hearing. Even more generally, uh, the idea, uh, the connection throughout Scripture, the scriptural theme about hearing and uh, remembering. The, the scriptural writers at times seem to suggest that if we sin, we haven't properly heard or at least listened to God's voice. Um, there's also a sense in which um, trying to see everything is related to like a lack of faith, uh, that mm -hmm. he, there's a connection between hearing, uh, as in believing God's promise, hearing and believing God's promise for a future that has not yet come into being, and the connection between hearing and faith. And so that's some of the theological basis or rationale that I use to identify music then as a way to look at just the faculty of hearing itself and what that means in our life of faith in general, and then also more specifically how that uh, connects to hearing preaching. Well, it's it's this really interesting idea that you develop in, in these different areas that we'll discuss in, in depth as we move through some of the different chapters. Tell us a little bit about the different ways that people have tried to see these two things related. Uh, so when I talk about music and preaching, a lot of times people hear that and say, oh, that's so great because uh, those are 
two very important things in the lives of churches and congregations. Um, but then it's interesting to, uh, to hear where different people go with that because yeah. uh, different people will think of different things. So um, some people will think, oh, yeah, and I've heard this from some friends. Oh, yeah, our priest sings uh, when he preaches. Uh, he brings his guitar into mass sometimes, and I think that's really cool. I think it's, it's cool to relate to people in a different way. And, and that actually is one of the methods that people use, and I talk about that in the book. I, I talk about that as the music in preaching method. Um, and there's different ways to do that as well. But uh, basically what you're doing is you're calling direct attention to musical sounds or you're including musical sounds themselves um, intentionally in your sermons. Uh, there's other ways of thinking about it, though, and that's um, one a different way of thinking about it is the musicality of preaching. And so this is especially strong in African-American or Black uh, homiletical uh, traditions uh, in America, where there, uh, uh, the musicality of speech itself is an important component of the meaning of the sermon. Uh, the musicality indicates the, uh, uh, the presence of the Spirit. The musicality invites the participation of the congregation, the involvement and engagement of the congregation. So, uh, so that's another way of thinking about it. A subset of that is to think about uh, the skills that musicians know and, and to think about... Uh, you know, uh, performance practices that musicians have and how musicians approach uh, coming up in front of a group of people and performing a piece of music and what that might teach us about what it means to uh, preach the word, what it means to understand the word itself, the sermon itself as, as an event rather than uh, a static thing that's sort of fixed. And then, uh, and that gets us into a final method of looking at preaching, which is uh, preaching as music. And so I'm sort of calling more attention there uh, to the, the metaphorical connections that you might find uh, it, between preaching and music. So when you think about preaching as music, uh, so Eugene Lowry was uh, a big person who developed this idea. He uh, was very big on this idea that that sermons need to be understood as an event in time. And so uh, arts uh, like music and film and things like that can really teach us about what it means to unfold something over time and to think especially about the time element rather than to use a spatial metaphors to understand what a sermon is. So uh, preaching as music then is any way that uh, homileticians or preachers think on a more metaphorical level about what they're doing. So you, it, this can involve anything from looking at the way composers craft a melody and then thinking, does that teach us anything about the way that uh, preachers craft phrases and that kinds mm. of thing? So those are that's sort of the map that I developed, uh, and and I had these sort of two axes uh, that I mapped those different methods and different homileticians and preachers on who have talked about music and preaching before. So the axes are uh, the extent to which it's metaphorical or literal. So the musicality, whether we're talking like um, a metaphor between music and speech or literally the musicality of speech. 
And then on their other axis, the extent to which the homileticians or preachers are talking about musical qualities that are either intrinsic to musical sounds themselves or extrinsic, sort of uh, more involved in musical culture or the effects of music, uh, the sociological dimensions of music, that that sort of thing, or whether we're literally looking at, um, you know, crescendos or what it means to go up a a major scale or that kinds of Mm. thing. Uh, So uh, different Different homileticians and preachers have thought about this in lots of different ways, and I was trying to bring a little bit of order into that, and 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 actually propose then my own method that takes all of these ways into account and sort of is, is flexible along all of those uh, those quad those four quadrants that appear when you get those axes into place. Well, thank you so much for that. It's it is such a helpful way to help us navigate so much material in such a. Uh, orderly way. Now, one person that deserves a little extra attention that seems to become a uh, a regular conversation partner is a theologian called Jeremy Begbie. Uh, could you just share with us a little bit about his work and and how it has given some tools that helped you in this conversation? Sure. So one of the things that I've always struggled with uh, in the discipline of preaching is that if we're not careful, when we, especially when we deal with things that are like performance arts, or are we talking about per, uh, performance in preaching, uh, even even preaching unfolding as uh, an event in time rather than uh, you know some static spatial thing that we can think of, w- what I'm always worried about is that we're going to err on the side of technique and miss the different theological and deeper deeper theological implications that are there. And so when we draw connections between preaching and any other art, even even just rhetoric itself, what I what I worry about is that we get off into this sort of uh, performance-based, idea uh, about what preaching is and if we can only just get the method right then you know then that would get then that would really fix preaching you know uh, or or make people want to hear our sermons and and that sort of leaves off the larger theological question of towards what end yeah. so jeremy begbie for me has been one of those people who have demonstrated, I think, I think he's kind of like a trailblazer in the area of theology and the arts, demonstrating how to, through the arts, and in particular in Jeremy's case, through music, to understand more about theology. So he's got these classic musical ways that he's explained things like the Trinity or things like how God's will and human will are are not opposed to one another, but uh, can you know, sort of, re- God resonates through us, as it were. Um, it, you know, and, and he's got a lot of these different ways that he's explored theological themes through music in a way that opens up uh, you know, just different, uh, it opens up the imagination, I, I should say. And so for me, uh, it was very important that in doing a book on musical implications of preaching, or another way to say that is how preachers can use musical instincts, that we're not just looking at this as a, uh, you know, a clever tips and tricks to, you know, get people to, to listen to your TED Talk more or something like that. But, <laughs> but actually to say, what are the theological implications of putting these two uh, together? 
And I can think of no better guide for that than uh, Jeremy Begbie. So his theology through the arts and theology through music um, projects uh, are that there's they're huge now to, in in my mind at least uh, and in my understanding. Lots of folks who have either studied with Jeremy or been in similar sorts of orbits. But it seems to me that when he started his work even 25 years ago, that there was a lot less uh, being written and produced about that. And so I'm just very grateful for his contribution and to use him as a theological guide. A big theme that you draw from his work that now you're going to build in these chapters is how much music and preaching both have so much time embodiment in them. And, And the first chapter deals with time and this idea of synchrony. So what is what is synchrony in music and then how can it be a helpful tool for preaching? Uh, so synchrony in music, uh, a rough definition would be connecting disparate temporalities together into a single unified temporality. And that's one of the things that music does so well, uh, primarily with rhythm, which is more along the temporal dimension of what music is. So uh, rhythms help us to organize time in a group together. Uh, The idea of entrainment, which is very close to synchrony. So entrainment just uh, simply means, again, to sync up with a beat for a lot of individuals uh, to sync up together as a group with a with a beat and so that requires rhythm it requires uh, a regular beat or meter and uh, so that's one of the things that music does so well and when um, when scientists now have studied this uh, more and more uh, every year it seems like it comes out more more studies or more uh, demonstrations of the, the benefits for a group of, of making music together and of entraining together uh, as, uh, as a group to, and training to a beat or being united in synchrony. So uh, in benefits like uh, improved uh, mental health for individuals singing in a choir, um, you know, improved, which involves also improved uh, emotional regulation, but also just a, a better sense of being a group together. So one of the things that music just uh, just does so well is to create that sense of a group dynamic. And then how does that influence our understanding of what preaching is and and how we can um, apply that towards our study of preaching? Yeah, so um, one of the ways that I then take that and, and use that is I, I, I build upon, in this case, in the case of synchrony, the the area of preaching is is black homiletics or African-American preaching that has really been strong uh, in the practice and in uh, the, the homiletical literature that talks about this, about talking about the preacher's role. Evans Crawford has this wonderful line of uh, that he calls the hum. Uh, it's this uh, this mm. this energy that passes back and forth. It's this call and response uh, between preacher and congregation. And uh, as I've already alluded to, that has more than just a sociological significance in those congregations. There really is a sense in which this is how we understand the spirit to work in the uh, in the ministry of preaching. I found a, a different way that um, 
let's just say white homileticians or white mainline in this in the case of the people that I looked at in my book, homileticians would understand what they're doing in maintaining synchrony. But yet what I'm trying to argue for is, so in that case, in the white homileticians case, they're talking more about creating um, movement through the arrangement of content. So the, the strategic unfolding of content and how do you, how do you develop a theme? It, it almost felt to me more like um, classical music versus pop music or gospel music or something like that, the different ways that these preachers would operate because they're assuming different listening cultures. And so I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, uh, but just to say that uh, part of synch- part of using synchrony well in preaching, if you're going to think uh, through this musical metaphor, is to know what sort of listening culture you're talking to and you're, or you're preaching among and be able to be flexible with the ways that you try to create that movement with, and that uh, that sort of group feel that we're, we're moving together, that we're synced up together, whether that happens on a more uh, literal level in the performance of the, the sermon itself, or whether you're thinking more in terms of uh, creating a sense of flow um, that might could be a sense of a narrative arc or a gospel-shaped arc uh, to the sermon and the way that the, the time uh, unfolds uh, in different listening cultures. Well, the next time-related chapter theme that you developed are these ideas of repetition and also, maybe surprisingly, of, of patience. Mm-hmm. And I loved, um, I loved how you, you took some of this, and, and maybe just to jump into this, um, how does a joke work? And why is that relevant for um, understanding music and preaching? But it was such a great insight. So what I was drawing upon there is the work of this musicologist named David Huron. And he wrote this great book called Sweet Anticipation, Music and the Psychology of Expectation. And uh, I just love the book because the theory I found to be so useful to help uh, preachers and musicians understand what it is that they're doing uh, through repetition in creating expectations for listeners. And then uh, part of the pleasure of music is uh, so you, you, you encounter these repeated patterns and in, in music itself is built upon repeated patterns, the ability to even understand sounds, pitched sounds in time as music uh, requires immersion in a certain sound environment over time that you learn to sort of make sense of it like the way that you learn a language. So the way that a joke works or the way that a joke relates to this idea is that um, part of the pleasure of listening to music is creating expectations for what sound and pitch events, so what rhythmic and pitch related events are going to happen next, and then having those expectations in certain cases be frustrated, similar to the way that a joke maybe sort of suddenly overturns our expectations for where we thought things were going. Uh, but then the reason you laugh at a joke is be- you get pleasure out of it is because 
Um, even though we want to as creatures, because we want to survive, we want to make correct predictions about what's happening. And uh-huh. a joke is, is an incorrect predi- prediction. But then we soon enough realize that, that that was an innocuous mistake. And we get the pleasure of contrastive valence, which is a, uh, you know, a nerdy way or uh, a complicated way of just saying a surprise, you know, it, uh, <laughs> but it was a, a, a pleasant surprise. And so music works the same way it overturns our expectations and uh, initially we might be troubled by that that we made an incorrect prediction about what was going to happen next again because this is like deeply in embedded in human nature is to make correct predictions so we can survive about what's going to happen next but then we appraise these uh, you know expectations that were frustrated in some way or altered in some way by the music, we appraise these as innocuous and we get pleasure out of that in a, in a weird sort of way. And so musicians, whether that would be composers or performers, or in most cases, both, they know how to play on this in the way that they write the music and in the way they perform the music. Hmm. And that all has to do then, uh, is all built upon repetition and uh, the sorts of things that people are used to hearing and the sorts of creative departures that musicians and performers will do in order to uh, keep the listening pleasure alive. Now, in this discussion of repetition, you do bring in this, this musical concept of the cadence, and you talk about how sometimes uh, a, a pure balance isn't the most balanced Mm. Uh, approach and that's true in music and in also in in preaching yeah i loved this part you know this to me it might feel like to some readers that it gets a little bit into the weeds but (laughs) there was this um this this debate that happened in the homiletical world a couple of decades ago and it was sort of about this question of how much time do we spend with the bad news of the, you know, like Frederick Buechner said, the, the gospel's bad news before his good news. So how much time do we spend on the bad news and sort of, um, or in Paul Scott Wilson's terms, how much time do we spend talking about the trouble in the world and the trouble in the Bible uh, versus how much time we talk about grace or God's goodness or, uh, you know, uh, redemption in the world uh, and uh, redemption in the Bible. And what Wilson was arguing for was that the best gospel-centered preaching would give just as much airtime to uh, God's goodness, God's grace in the world, in the Bible, as it would uh, to the bad news that precedes the uh, the announcement of the good news. Eugene Lowry really had a problem with this and um, and spoke out against it. And his point was the uh, it's not so much about like a like we just count up every word and and <laughs> figure out what category it, fit, it fits into. You have to figure out where it ha- where that uh, the good news announcement happens in the time of the sermon. And and so, and you have to like, look at it in its context. And if we're thinking about this in a, through the musical metaphor, then we would think about like how much time a composer, let's say spends 
wandering away from the home tonic key and creating that musical tension. And then right at the right sort of metrical moment, the, the moment of tension and then resolution into the back into the home tonic. Uh, that's a basic idea of how to understand how music works. Well, um, Lowry was sort of arguing for what we, what we want to pay more attention to is, is, the way that the the gospel factors in and uh, the effect that it has based on sort of how it's done. And in some cases, what he was arguing for was that, that, that preachers can afford to spend even more time, let's say, on the bad news um, to make that, resol- that resolution to the good news uh, even that much more um, enjoyable or or felt uh, or profound uh, profoundly felt by listeners because of the way that the that the preacher uh, places it and the way that that uh, announcement is disclosed now uh, and I uh, just to say that I think Lowry actually in this case has um, at least the musical metaphor and even the the research that's gone into music on his side. So, uh, and this was pointed out in a marvelous way by, I think this was David Huron who pointed this out that in music theory, the, the chord that's called the dominant uh, is the five chord, not the one chord, the, the one chord, the home chord that's called the tonic, but the dominant is the five chord and in actuality when when you look through like mean, they analyzed thousands and and who knows you know thousands and thousands of pieces and found that the most prevalent harmonic structure in these pieces in western classical music at least is uh, or, and I think that actually includes western tonal uh, music of all sorts even pop music that the most prevalent is the the dominant, the five chord, not the one chord. So it's the thing that resolves into the one chord that uh, actually in music also recurs most often. Isn't that fascinating? Wow. So the dominant is dominant. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And and it really just does, for me at least, it puts a different spin or a different way to think about this idea of balance between, you know, trouble or bad news and, yeah. uh, you know, grace and good news. Well, in, in these these two chapters, we've talked about rhythm and time a lot. We've talked about tonality and cadence and time a lot. This last chapter you have tries to bring these two together, and, and you, you take it into this provocative place with this idea of cliché and hmm. what cliché is and what cliché means. What What is a cliché? Yeah, so my favorite definition of a cliché is uh, Roger Scruton had this wonderful phrase, a cliche is something that is borrowed but not earned. And so he, he talks about, um, actually, and he talks about this, Scruton does, as, uh, as a philosopher of music, uh, or even a philosopher more generally, uh, Scruton talks about the moral dangerousness of cliche and wow. sentimentality. And he, he talks about this idea of, so a, a cliche is something that um, even the word cliche uh, originated as this idea of like a metal print it is something that you just mm-hmm. kind of stamp out. It's mass produced. Uh, you, you know, it, it doesn't take any, any work. So in, in music, a cliche is something that just feels like, it, in some ways, it goes back to what we were talking about before. It's just too predictable. It, it just feels like 
Um, like we haven't earned this sweet saccharine uh, cadence that just ties everything up in a bow. Like this, this music isn't fun to listen to because it really doesn't like go anywhere. It's just, it's just cliche. Right. You know, and um, Scruton had this uh, marvelous way of, of saying that even though uh, certain 20th century experiments uh, like, uh, 12 tone, atonal music, that kind of thing, uh, were meant to, um, uh, were meant to combat cliche. They ended up with all sorts of atonal cliches of their own. Uh, so, so like there's no easy way around it. It actually becomes, um, more of a question of the character of the musician, of the preacher themselves. Uh, is the preacher, let's say, just in this case, is the preacher of a strong enough character that they have withstood suffering and stayed hopeful in the hope of the gospel? Is the preacher um, the type of person that is willing to sit with suffering to acknowledge the full gravity of what the people in the pews are going through. And yet in, in that space, um, not to tie things up or to, to minimize the suffering and yet to speak a word of hope of gospel, hope of resurrection, hope that still uh, triumphs over whatever it is that, um, that gets us, uh, gets us weighed down, uh, with the cares of the world as it were. And so, uh, one of the people that talked a lot about this in, um, in reference to how the spirituals help us morally, uh, understand this, uh, it was Luke Powery. He in, talks about the connection between, uh, the spirituals and uh, preaching. And he talks about this candy theology, which he calls, uh, is like the, 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 the theology that really just doesn't touch the ground in any way in the brokenness of what people experience in their lives. And so therefore ends up in cliche. Hmm. Now, Noel, you've been so generous with your time sharing with us about this book. I wonder, before we let you go, uh, are you working on anything new that we could be looking forward to? Sure. Uh, so some of this research about music and preaching, I've continued on and done um, more research and writing on it. And I'm focusing a little bit more on the musicality of speech and how that factors into preaching. And so I've uh, written a chapter in a forthcoming volume, uh, the Oxford Companion to Music and Theology, uh, that's going to, there's going to be an entry in there uh, on musical preaching that I'm going to do. Uh, And I continue to work on some things related to congregational song and uh, preaching and music and how all of those uh, interact in uh, worship settings. And so that's still, uh, it's those sorts of conference involvements uh, that that I'm staying active in. But I do want to mention and invite all of your listeners uh, to join us every February in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for uh, the Calvin Symposium on Worship, uh, which is a great gathering where where you can find all sorts of people who are willing to discuss all sorts of subjects related to preaching, music, theology, biblical interpretation, theology in the arts, um, and uh, all sorts of other ways that uh, 
congregational life and ministry uh, is explored in the context of worship leadership. Uh, you won't be disappointed. Come and join us in Grand Rapids, uh, February 8th through 10, 2023. But then even after that, you can find on our website, worship.calvin.edu, all sorts of other listings about events that we have uh, throughout the year. Well, that's wonderful. And all of the listeners should know that there is no better time to be in Michigan <laughs> than early February. See, that's part of that's part of my sales pitch. I say, you know, it's a good conference because we get fifteen hundred people to come to West Michigan in February. That's it. That's it. Well, Noel, it's been such a such a treat to have you here. Thank you so much. The book is Sermons That Sing. Music and the Practice of Preaching. You can get your copy now from IVP Academic. Noel, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Christian Studies. Visit newbooksnetwork.com to browse our library of over 12,000 interviews. But that's it for now. I hope you have a great day.